Well, good evening. Glad you're here on a little bit of a dreary, dreary night, but we have an exciting story in the book of Genesis. Actually, I know you would expect me to say this, but I sincerely mean this, passionately interested in, the book of Genesis has unbelievably powerful stories, and they are so impactful to today. And then studying Revelation right behind it, I think you're going to see really great tie-in. So I appreciate you just committing to come every week, and we'll dive into the scriptures. And uh, as usual, by the way, I think that number's on your page, but during this class, feel free to text your questions in and try to answer the ones that seem like they're broadly uh, of interest. Apologize if we don't get them all answered, but we'll see if we can do as many as we can. We're talking about beginnings and endings, and we're focusing at the beginning on the book of Genesis. And if you remember, our first two stories, if you will, are the first two movements or acts in this great human drama begin with the creation. Remember our assignment out of that first week in creation is to remember some truths about who you are. And that is God loves you. And I feel like I'm talking to uh, back in children's ministry, but you know what? There's profound things that never change, and this one never does. God loves you. He made you in his image. He made you on purpose and for a purpose. That's what we talked about in our first lesson of creation. Powerful lessons for today. It's not just an ancient story. It's not just a truth that happened a long time ago, but God's love is real today. God's purpose is real today, just as it was for Adam and Eve. We then looked at the garden. We looked at Adam and Eve and their decision point and that rebellion against God, that sin that separated them. And your assignment in this last uh, time since our last lesson was stop trying harder. One of the profound lessons from that is that we are not able to perfect ourselves. There's no self-help regimen. There's nothing that I can do to just pull myself up by my bootstraps and make everything work out in life and reconcile myself to God and restore the harmony that was broken in that garden. So we should stop trying harder and instead rely on the God who is on our side. Actually, better to say that we are on his side. But he is intimately concerned about us. And if we will cooperate, cooperate with what God wants to do in us, he will restore us. And that's just a big sigh of relief when you think about, can I live up to what God expects of me this week? I'll make this easy for you. No. Okay, now we're done with that. So let's move on. No, I cannot. Well, what can I do? I can cooperate with what he wants to do. I can stop rebelling and saying, you lead, I follow. Instead of, I lead, you can come with me if you want. So that's the, the lesson we had from our last lesson was to stop trying harder and rely on God. What we basically saw was that the harmony that God created, harmony with God, with each other, and with creation, was broken. We broke our harmony with God. Remember God said, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In other words, we broke our harmony with this world. And in our story today, we're going to see how we also broke our harmony in a really fundamental way with each other. Every aspect of harmony appears to be broken by human action and human rebellion. So I want to talk to you about the story of Cain and Abel. And it picks up where we left off in our last lesson. If you remember, Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. God is still concerned about them. He still cares for them. But they're sent out 
of the garden to live in this world. Our story opens, and I'm just going to tell you the story, and then I want to focus in on the science of the story and the theology of the story in that order. Our story opens in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, and it basically says this. Adam and Eve, after they're expelled from the garden, begin to have children. Adam lays with his wife, and they have two boys. They bore a son, Cain, and then a son, Abel. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a sheep herder. And so they had different occupations, but they're both born to Adam and Eve in this post-Eden kind of society. As time went by, they came to God to acknowledge God and to make an offering to God. And so Cain brought some of the fruit of the land, some of the crops, and Abel brought the first fruits, the best of the lambs that he had before God. And they both presented them to God, and God showed favor toward Abel's offering, but not toward Cain's. And the scripture said that Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. And God spoke to him and said, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Surely you know that if you do well, you'll be accepted. He said, but Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Like a wild animal, it desires to have you, but you must master it. Well, Cain departs from there, and in some time following, he speaks to his brother Abel, and he takes him out to the field, and there Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. He comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain replies, that famous passage, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? I thought maybe you were my brother's keeper. And God turns to him and he says, what have you done? He said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And in fact, there's an interesting twist I want to tell you here because it explains the way Jews look at this kind of thing. The word there for blood is plural, which it normally is in a situation of murder. In other words, your brother's bloods cry out to me from the ground. And that gives rise to the idea that when you murder someone, you not only kill them, you kill all their potential descendants. You've ended the line of Abel, not just Abel. And in fact, you'll hear uh, Jews today sometimes say this idea, and it's an old proverb that one who saves a life, it's as though he saved the whole world. The idea being once you save a life, you actually save everything that then flows from that life. So God said, the blood of your brother and, and all his future cries out to me from the ground. And so, Cain, you, the ground is going to be cursed because of you. And Cain, you're going to be cast out to be a fugitive and a wanderer around the earth. You can't stay. Cain turns to God and he said, my guilt is too much for me to bear. This judgment you've given me is, is just unbearable. I'll be away from you, out of your presence, and wherever I go, if people see me, they're going to kill me. The murderer is now worried about being murdered. And God says, not so. He says, no one will kill you. And he puts a mark on Cain, and we'll come back to that when we get to the book of Revelation, by the way. He puts a mark on Cain so that people will know to leave him alone. And so the scripture says, Cain then goes out away from the presence of the Lord, and he settles in the land of Nod, 
And the word nod means wandering. And so he becomes a wanderer. He's cast out even further east of Eden, away from the presence of God. And then Cain laid with his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Enoch. And Cain then began to build a city, it says in verse 17, and he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. Well, I want to stop there for that story for just a few minutes because that short, simple little story is just fraught with meaning. It's fraught with meaning for human destiny, and it's also particularly powerful in its application to you and to me. So I want to approach this simple story that I've just told you in two ways. I want to talk about the science of that story, and I want to talk about the theology of that story, and then I want to end by making a connection that's particularly important to us. First, the science of the story. I know what you are thinking. Where did Cain's wife come from? Where did all the people come from that Cain thought was going to kill him? And why is he building a city if there aren't people to live in that city? So where did Cain's wife come from? Where did all these other people come from? That's a really an interesting question. And to, to talk about it, I want to remind you of the framework of how Christians have viewed this idea of creation, because it's going to impact a little bit how you might answer this. Because I'm going to give you some choices, as I usually do, and, but I want you to kind of see the groundwork that leads up to it. Basically, as we approach the idea of creation, this creation story, and remember, we're just four chapters, just a very short little story. There's, there's not much room being consumed here, but there are tremendous things being told to us. And so it doesn't answer all of our questions of exactly how things are done and exactly when they happen. And you know my saying is, let the Scripture be what it wants to be, let it say what it wants to say. The Scripture does not want to be a science text. On the other hand, it has some very profound things to say. Well, in general, there are two broad ways that people have approached creation, and we spoke about these. And the first is kind of an old earth view of creation. And the old earth view looks at the creation story, and this is going to impact our question of where did Cain's wife come from, looks at the story in creation and says, you know, those seven days specifically the six days of creation, we're going to read that not as six 24-hour days, but six eras. And that God did indeed, and this is a Christian idea. I mean, there, you can certainly have this view and not have a Christian approach to it, but I'm going to speak to you ideas that people who actually believe in the God of the Bible. And they would say, God created the earth, no question about it. But the language of Genesis leaves the door open in the old earth view for, well, how did he go about it and in what time frame? Consequently, current science thinks that the, earth is, or that the universe is about 14 billion years old. The earth is about four and a half billion years old. And so the old earth view says, you know, I don't have any major heartburn with that. My God created it, created it in six days, and those days may have been billion-year eons to him. So in other words, it's an old earth and God created it over a great period of time. People usually look at the creation of the earth and old earth and creation of humans in a couple of ways from a Christian point of view. One is in a progressive way, meaning God kicked off some natural laws 
and some development of planets coalescing and the earth begins and the stars begin. He created some natural laws, if you will. They're not natural. They're supernatural in that he created them. But these natural laws that operate. And he intervenes. Remember I told you the dividing line between a Christian and non-Christian idea is a God who kicks things off and steps back. That's called deism. A God who continues to be involved and loves you and made you in his image, that's a Christian idea. And so they would say God continues to be involved and intervenes. The idea of theistic evolution is that perhaps God created human beings through a process of evolution, but it's, it's God's involvement. It's not blind chance. It's not random mutations. It's God being involved. And that's often called a theistic or a God-driven form of evolution. So that's one way, I'm kind of summarizing, that's one way to look at the Scriptures, to say God did everything that he said in the book of Genesis, but he did it in a way that, frankly, isn't really much at odds with current scientific thinking. So the earth is old. People got here through some kind of guided process that God did, not necessarily instantaneously. A contrasting view is what's called the young earth view, meaning the earth isn't very old. It's between 6,000 and 10,000 years old. It has the appearance of age because God made it that way for, for whatever purpose he chose, but that the earth is only six to 10,000 years old and that human beings were created in the form that you see them now. True, Adam probably was wearing wide ties and big lapels because you know, that was the style in those days, but fundamentally, they're created the way you see them now. So, and I put on your page, there's a, a you know, sometimes people have questions about that. Actually, they have questions about both of these views, but sometimes questions about the young earth view and the answers in genesis.org. There are many sites out there, but that's a very popular and well-known site that answers some questions of how do I understand Genesis from the, what I'm calling a young earth kind of view. So if you had more questions about that view, I think that site does a good job of explaining that point of view. So basically we have these two ways of looking at it. Both of them understand as God did what he said he did in Genesis, but how he did it and in what time frame he did it would vary between these two ideas. A young earth created as it is with the appearance of age, an old earth that genuinely took a long time to get here, but God was involved in guiding that process. Those are kind of the two different views of how we got here. So now let's come to Cain and Cain's wife and those other people as God's created Adam and Eve in the garden. Where did Cain's wife come from? I want to fast forward uh, just for the purposes of our story in chapter 4 and just show you a verse in chapter 5. This is just a fact. We're not going to go through this piece. But it said that later, okay, Cain is gone and he's wandering. And then Adam and Eve have more children. He has a son named Seth. And Seth is going to show up in a really important way in our next lesson when we get to the sort of the pivot point of prehistory. Things are going to really turn in our next lesson, and Seth is important in that. But for now, I want you to understand that the Scripture says Adam and Eve had other children. Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. So the Scripture doesn't give you a lot of details, but it does say, well, Adam and Eve had more children than what you're told. We don't know their names, we don't know who they all were, but they had more children than what we've been told. So I want to set that groundwork and now then come back to the question, where did these other people come from? Where did Cain's wife come from? And in fact, 
I want to give you three points of view, three potential answers to this. The first one is this, and that is Cain married Adam's other children. In other words, Adam and Eve had a lot of children, and he married one of those other kids. Now, that is a problem for us because it sounds incestuous. He married his sister. According to Jewish tradition in both the Talmud and the Book of Jubilees, Cain married his sister. To us, that's a taboo for a variety of reasons, some biological, mainly cultural, but fundamentally that's a taboo. But set that aside for a moment. In that way, those are all the people that there were. God hadn't said this is a bad thing. God said, no, this is a good thing. And so one of the Jewish traditions is that he married his sister. Another interesting tradition, and this is a Hasidic tradition. If you've heard of Hasidic Jews, this Hasidic tradition says that when Cain was born, he had a twin sister. It just isn't mentioned in the account. And when Abel was born, he had a twin sister. It just isn't mentioned in the account. And so they were set to each marry the other's sister, so to speak, the other's twin sister. And according to that tradition or legend, and really this is much, very much conjecture, but it's an, and it's an ancient way of thinking about this story from the Jews is that Cain ended up killing Abel over a rivalry about that, that, the, that hostility wasn't so much God's approval as it was who wants to marry whom. You begin to see this interpersonal idea. But in one way or another, that the only children that there were were Adam and Eve's children. There happened to be a lot of them, and the earth begins to be populated because Cain married one of Adam's other children. You think, well, what about genetic defects? What about inbreeding? I want you to stop for just a second and say, we understand that to be a fact of biology at this point in history, but if you go back and you think about this is not natural processes. This is the God, if you believe... I'm going to talk about Christian points of view here. If you believe that God created all of this, you certainly can believe that God created it without any genetic imperfections. In fact, that's usually the way we understand another question. Why did people live so long then? They were not intended to die at all. Do you understand what I'm saying? That Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they're created without any aging, without any genetic abnormalities that could be passed on, without any negative recessive traits. But, remember the serpent? Eve said, if we eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then we'll die. And he said, no, you won't. And then Eve realizes, oh, yes, we will. And so you begin to see Lifespans get shorter and shorter. And so something fundamental happened. Instead of being perfect, we begin to decay. The universe is broken. We get physically broken. That that's all part of the fall. And so people live longer because, and you'll notice it goes down over time, is we're decaying. We're no longer what we were meant to be. So we're born without the genetic abnormalities. I mean, God created us in a, in a very pristine thing. So the understanding there is, is that that's, not an unreasonable point of view, because if God can create the universe, he can certainly create human beings who, who don't have genetic problems. Anyway, that's that particular point of view. Second point of view, God created other people, not just Adam and Eve. Now, this is conjecture. Can you get this from the text? No. In other words, this text doesn't want to answer those questions. You notice that the text not, doesn't even apologize. It says, look, and Cain married his wife, who I realized I didn't tell you where she came from. I'm so sorry I could, didn't have enough room on the page to tell you that. The scripture doesn't even apologize for that. It's not interested in that. 
But we kind of want to fill in the blanks, and one of the ways people filled in that blank is that God created other people either before Adam, they're not the first two people, they're just the first two people of this story, that's called pre-Adamism, or with Adam and Eve at the same time. He created them, and he told you about creating them, but he also created other people. If you look at the text, there's nothing that would necessarily dispute that in this story, and that's called co-Adamism at the same time. He created some other people. And then the Genesis story focuses on Adam and Eve as representative of people. So that's a second view. First, Cain married Adam's other children that Genesis 5 says existed. Second is the scripture just doesn't tell you that God created some other people, either before or at the same time as Adam. And then third, this becomes much, much further out there, but some people want to understand this story that Adam and Eve aren't necessarily real human beings, real individuals, but that they're prototypical human beings. Adam and Eve are amalgams of humanity, and they're, the Genesis story is explaining the human condition, and it is explaining human destiny, and it's doing it through the story of Adam and Eve that they're not necessarily literal people. This is not, by the way, considered an orthodox Christian view, but I wanted you to understand how people wrestle the full spectrum is that Cain married some of Adam's other children and God populated the earth the same way he created it, basically, with his power, with this ability, that perhaps we just don't know all the story. Maybe there were other people that were created before or at the same time as Adam and Eve, or further out there is, well, maybe this story doesn't even want to be literally true about these two individuals. Maybe it's more of a story or a metaphor. Now, that's a pretty broad range, but it generally characterizes the way people want to answer this question of, how can I account for these other people? Where do they come from? Okay? Pause there, because I imagine there'll be a few questions, but basically, as you look at this story from a, quote, scientific or historical point of view, these are some of the questions you would ask. And while the text doesn't necessarily want to answer them, we've often brought some conjecture to it to try to come up with an answer. Question? If we assume that, Adam, that Adam's children married his other children, then who was Cain afraid of? He doesn't call them his brothers and sisters. Right, who is Cain afraid of then? Because he doesn't call them his brothers and sisters. But the fact that he doesn't call them, under that point of view, there, is, there are no other people. And so consequently, he's afraid of the rest of the family. I can understand that. I'm afraid of some parts of my family. You know, I go to those family gatherings, it's like, you know, this can be a dangerous place, right? I mean, we just finished the Christmas holidays. I think we're all still smarting a little bit that, hey, family's not always safe. I'm kidding. But fundamentally, the fact that he doesn't call them brothers and sisters doesn't seem conclusive any more than the fact that he says they're not. So that point of view simply says Genesis 5 only mentions other children. Therefore, that's who it must have been. Again, the text isn't explicit, but that's an inference that's drawn from Genesis chapter 5, verse 4 that they would have effectively been brothers and sisters. Is Adam the father of Abel? In the text, it says that Adam knew his wife and Cain was born, and then it just says that she had Abel. Yes, is Adam the father of both Cain and Abel? Now, here's where you get some really, what I'm going to call unjustified and pretty wild speculation. Uh, 
really suitable for primetime drama these days. There, there, I'm not aware of any idea that's been advanced, even as real speculation, that Abel is not the child of Adam and Eve. So no. There is speculation in what I would consider very liberal circles, and it is purely speculation that Cain wasn't Adam and Eve's child. That's difficult because the text strongly implies that, but there is a kind of a line of thinking that maybe the serpent, the Satan, has intervened, and, and we're going to talk about this also in our next lesson when we talk about the Nephilim and what's going on here with the children of men and the and these other beings, but that leads people to say, well, maybe since Cain was a bad guy, maybe it was Satan. And, he, and again, you see all kinds of conjecture. These conjectures I reject easily because partly they're purely conjecture, and secondly, they don't really have a consistency to them. So the question of Cain and Abel being Adam and Eve's children is just really difficult to entertain any, any other thing. The, the text, while it might not just show you the birth certificate and the little baby footprint you know, on the birth certificate, is, is really strongly suggestive. So interesting question. Others have entertained it. Doesn't seem to be a productive speculation to me. Where would we be if Adam and Eve had not sinned? Would the world be like it is today? Good question. If Adam and Eve had not chosen rebellion, chosen to live on their terms instead of God's terms, would the world look like it did today? Christian understanding? No, it would not. Christian understanding is this is not the way things are intended to be. And when I say Christian understanding, I don't just mean a Christian understanding of Genesis. I mean a Christian understanding of all of history. And when we get to Revelation in a few weeks and begin to study that, you'll see that even at the end of history, there's the clear understanding this is not the way it was meant to be. That our world is broken, that we live in rebellion. That's going to be a theme that you'll see running all through Genesis. Every story we tell, you're going to see the effects of that. So the thought would be, no, without sin, our world wouldn't look like it does. And when sin is defeated, it will no longer look like it does. So good question. Okay. Did people actually get married in this time, or was it just a monogamous relationship? Good question. I'm not going to read this passage, but I'm just going to refer to it. If you continue to read this, you're going to see some of the uh, generations of Cain. He has a son, Enoch, and Enoch has a son. Oh, they have a lot of kids, but they name some of the kids. No, there is no marriage in this time period in the sense that there's, they didn't go down to the justice of the peace and get married, not a big church wedding, that kind of a thing. In other words, God hasn't instituted marriage. He's clearly instituted a design, a man, a woman, and, you know, and he's going to talk about, you know, he created woman and man. We looked at that in the story in chapter 2 of Genesis, so that the man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So God has instituted, I'm a play with this. This is just a semantic. He has instituted marriage. I mean, what you and I understand as marriage is the coming together and the becoming one, not just in a physical, but in a spiritual sense of man and woman. He has instituted that, but there's no particular civil ceremony that's mentioned here. It does appear to be monogamous, and in fact it is, and that's the way God created it. It's not until the seventh generation after Cain, a guy named Lamech, who marries two women. 
and it doesn't turn out well for him. And I just want to let you know that. that there's another fundamental truth of the scripture that historically moves right along. And so my advice to you is do not do what Lamech did. Right? But that's a good question. God does indeed create marriage. Again, not a civil ceremony, not as a structured thing, but clearly Genesis talks about that. And it is monogamous. The two become one. Not the three become some kind of weird arrangement. But you see humanity corrupting that idea, don't you? You're probably saying to yourself, but wait a minute, Terry, some of the guy, good guys in the Bible later on are going to have more than one wife. Yes, they are. This is a very corrupted world in the sense that God does not approve of everything that we have done, and yet he still loves us. Think about the garden. God certainly didn't approve of Adam and Eve, and he casts them out of the garden, but he clothes them. He continues to care for them. So you continue to see God's grace even, even, and this is what's so amazing about it, even on rebellious humanity. The passage in uh, Romans chapter 5, it says, now this is the amazing part. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You actually see that theme all through the scriptures. So we have corrupted many things. Marriage is one that also gets corrupted early on. In fact, I think you're going to see as we move through this in more and more interesting detail, there's nothing that hasn't been corrupted effectively by our rebellion. Good question. If we look at option three, mm -hmm. the prototypical explanation, yes. when do we switch from, actual, from prototypical to actual? We convert from metaphor to actual events. Well, I'm going to put myself in the position of thinking from that point of view. That is not my point of view. But since I gave you that option, because the purpose of this class isn't to tell you what to think, it's to engage this scripture and engage this God, and I trust your brains to also be engaged. So I'm going to put myself in that point of view and answer the question, when then, if one believed that these were mythical stories, if these were metaphors in some sense, when then does it end? There's a nice clean dividing point. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's what's called the prehistory Chapter 12, we begin the Abraham story, which is fascinating, by the way. And I'll tell you that in a way that you, you may not have heard it before. That begins at a pretty datable time in history, two approximately 2,000 years before the time of Christ. So Genesis 12 on, and, and there are liberal people who don't believe Abraham actually lived, but answering this question, Genesis 12 on becomes very specific, very datable, very much real. Genesis 1 through 11 from this point of view, is largely metaphorical. Again, that is not my view, but from that point of view, Genesis 11, 12 would be the dividing point to answer that question. That's where you kind of need to stop playing pretend and get serious. Wouldn't God have known that Adam and Eve would sin and fall since he knows all? Yes, this is a profound question. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I'm afraid I'll just lose your interest on it, but this is an interesting question, and I'm going to give you a, a something, just a seed to think about. I'd actually like to answer this question in the book of Revelation, but let's start, plant a seed now and watch by the end if you don't have really interesting thoughts about this because what I'm about to tell you is going to go, wait just a minute. Wait till we get to Revelation, and I think you're going to say, ah, this is starting to click together. But yes, if you understand God as being omniscient in the sense that he knows everything that's ever going to happen, that's definitely an orthodox Christian view. And so God sees the future. 
God knows that they are going to fall. God knows, foreknows that they will choose. Some could even argue that that's God's plan that they will choose. You can pick your theology on that, and I'm comfortable with it. We're going to land in the same place together, at least on this case. What that would imply is one of two things. God's not a very good God, and I'm going to reject that out of hand because it isn't consistent with everything in the scriptures. Or God somehow understands that this is actually the way to get to the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? It's sort of like this. If you take your child and you give them, and your goal for your child is that they would be happy, well-adjusted, productive members of society, followers of Jesus Christ, just harmonious, happy, high bowling average, good golfer. You know, you've got this vision of what you want them to be, and you decide the way I'm going to give you that vision is I'm going to put you in a beautiful house, and I'm going to buy you a really nice car, and I'm going to send you only to the best schools, and I'm going to give you everything that you want, and I'm going to give you every opportunity, and do you think that is likely to get you what your vision is? In fact, it's extremely unlikely to get you a well-adjusted individual. I mean, just look around. I mean, any parenting book you pick up, even secular parenting books will tell you, that is not the way to get it. What if you knew that to have a well-adjusted child, as they move into adulthood, they needed to struggle with some things, they needed to fail at certain things, that they needed to have some successes, they needed to have some trials, they needed to have some triumphs, they needed to have some failures. In other words, they needed to be guided to a place where they could really have the experience, the knowledge, and the beliefs to, have, to be a well-adjusted person. That makes sense to you and, and me about how we might want to rear our children. We're not always mad at the things that don't go their way. They need to lose a few games. They need to be humbled occasionally. They need to be encouraged occasionally. In other words, there's a mix of what's happening. All right, I want you to just take that general idea and broaden it and say, if God looked down the road and said, I want these people to be my children and us to have this intimate relationship. In other words, I want this kind of person, that happiness, and there'll be no tears, and there's going to be this beautiful harmony. What if he knew this is the only way to travel to get there? So, I know that sounds kind of long-winded, but fundamentally, understanding God is seeing everything and accommodating the fall, one has to presume then that, you know what? This, as difficult as it sounds, is the way to reach real harmony with God. Does that make sense? Think about it raising our children. Think about God foreseeing that it will go this way and being powerful enough to say, I can take your failures, I can take your mistakes, and I can still get you to the garden in Revelation chapter 21. So that's generally how we would understand God's goodness and his magnificence is to even accommodate our rebellion and bring us back. Where do dinosaurs come into play when we're talking about the Garden of Eden? Great question. I knew the dinosaurs would come up. <laughs> Where do dinosaurs come from? I'm going to give you an answer that both camps are going to say, oh, that's really the short version of that story, Terry. You didn't do it justice. No, I'm not. Young Earthers, go to AnswersInGenesis.org or one of those sites. Old Earthers, you have no problem at all. You just think they came, they went, they had their day, right? You know, Barney the Dinosaur, hit TV show one day, extinct the next, right? So you, you, that, that's the way it happened. Young Earthers would understand that that is in some way part of God's plan to put 
things here that appear, give us the appearance of this is the trajectory and it's not. Does that make sense? Again, it's not going to be an adequate answer for people, but fundamentally that the Earth hadn't been around long enough for dinosaurs to exist hundreds of millions of years ago. And yet, here are bones that don't look like they came from granddad. And so, God has created the earth as it is for a purpose with this appearance of things. And also would answer, why is the universe sometimes created the way it is? Because our science about the universe is constantly changing. The only thing you can be sure of about science, and I'm pro-science. You know my view. Christians should be scientists because we'll be great scientists. Because we're not worried about where the truth leads. We know where it ends. But the one thing you can be sure about science is it's probably wrong. Good science has probably not got it all figured out yet, and good science doesn't mind that, while willing to change its mind. So fundamentally, a young earth view would be that God created it this way. Old earth view would be they came, they went, they were extinct, you know, kind of the usual story. So you've got, depending on your view of how God did this, would influence your view of the dinosaurs. You know, I could tell you a lot more. Some people want to see references to dinosaurs in the book of Job and other places, but look into that a little more and you'll see. But fundamentally, that's how it fits into those two views. Okay? Do you have one more? And then I want to turn to the theological side. Is it possible that the Nephilim were some of the other people that were on the earth at this time? The Nephilim being fallen angels, so they would have been here before humans, correct? And that they were the other bearers populating the earth. Yes, we will talk about that in our next lesson. And I'm not trying to push it off. It's just it's an interesting, interesting topic. And it comes in chapter 6, and it ties into the, fundamentally the story of Seth and Noah and the flood. But the Nephilim are an, just a cryptic little reference in chapter 6. And there are two or three interesting ideas about who they are. And then the Jews have some fascinating traditions and myths around that that I also want to share with you. So I'm going to hold that until next time is could the Nephilim have played into this maybe if we knew who they were you know in other words depends on your point of view of who they are but whatever your point of view is they're interesting and they upset the story quite a bit well let's move to the theological side for a minute because frankly where you don't have a lot of facts or information and let's face it you don't, I mean, it's amazing how much you're told in this short space, but it doesn't answer all the specific questions. Where you have an absence of facts, conspiracy theories and speculation usually rushes in to take its place. And on the scientific side, you get a lot of speculation and a lot of theories. And that's why I say is that as long as we hold to certain Christian understandings of God is who he is and he did what he said, we can be tolerant to some extent of understanding exactly how. In other words, there is a room for sincere differences of opinion here about how God did things. Because the truth is, we don't know for sure anything more than what the text tells us. The things we do know tend to be more theological about God's nature and about his goodness. Now, there's some ideas that are not Christian, but there's others that are. Are they all correct? No. Old earth and young earth, are they both true? Well, no, it doesn't seem so. But that doesn't mean that they're not sincerely held and still have that high view of God. So on the science side, you get a lot of speculation. On the theology side, not so much. This text wants to be read, primarily wants to be read, as telling you something far more important than where Cain's wife came from. Not that that's not interesting, but this text thinks there are 
far more important things. And there are three things that really jump out. And let me just go through the text and we'll show you. First idea, Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, Abel brought the fat portions of some of the firstborn of the flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel, but on Cain he did not look with favor, and Cain was very angry. And that brings up an interesting question, why did God favor Abel's offering and not Cain's? What was wrong? Because the text doesn't necessarily tell you that there was anything obviously wrong with it. So why did God not favor it? The Jewish understanding from way back has traditionally been looking at the reading very closely and something it doesn't say. For example, Abel brought the best, the firstborn of his flock, and the fat portions, which just means the first and the best of his flock. And the text says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. And so they read into what's not said and say this, that basically Cain brought leftovers to God. He didn't bring the first and the best, but Abel did. And God does not take leftovers. In other words, he favored Abel because he said, you gave me the first and the best of what you had to acknowledge who I am. And Cain, you gave me what you had left over. And God doesn't do leftovers. I mean, that's kind of one of the powerful ideas. And you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't God accept us all as we are? Yes, he does. There's a powerful sense in which God accepts us as we are, but not on our terms. Do you understand the difference there? Because sometimes I think we misunderstand that with the gospel. Will God accept us as we are? Yes, but not on our terms. That's the message of the garden. What did Adam and Eve say? We want to be in the garden, but we're going to eat the fruit no matter what you say. In other words, we're going to be here on my terms. And God says, not the way it works. You ever heard of this thing called eviction? Boom, you're out. Right, so they're out of the garden. The point that what Cain is saying effectively to God is, I want to acknowledge you with God on my terms. You'll get what I give you. Now, this is reading a little into it, but this is the long-term traditional understanding of why that happens. And the really good, the powerful idea for you and me is this idea of God wants our first and our best. God doesn't do leftovers. And I'll tell you a great way to think about it for us is God doesn't make a very good accessory. God doesn't make a very good accessory. And, you know, sometimes we're a little guilty of that. It's sort of like I'm, my Christianity is going to be kind of an add-on to my life. It's like, God, what can you do for me? I'm willing to add you on so you can help me with my marriage, or I'm going to add you on so I can become more prosperous. In other words, let's have a partnership here. God doesn't do partners very well. The creator of the universe says, I made you, you didn't make me. And so God wants to be our all. And you see that through all of the scriptures, is that God doesn't want to be our leftover. God doesn't want to be an accessory to our life. He doesn't just want to be a fish on the back of our car. He doesn't just want to be a cross around our neck. He doesn't just want to be a, oh, yeah, I go to church most of the time, punch that ticket. That's not, you see, the message of this is that's not what God is willing to be. He is willing to accept us, but not on our terms. And that's kind of one of the things that jumps out, both in the story of Adam and Eve, and again you see it here in Cain and Abel is that God will not accept just whatever we choose to give. You can be God on my terms. And that doesn't work. That God expects to be the creator, the creator that loves us, the creator that wants to redeem us, the creator that wants to accept us, but not on our terms. And that has profound implications for you and me because as Americans, in the society in which we grew up, we want everything our way. It's a consumer society. And sometimes we come to Christianity as consumers. And we say, 
what do you got for me? You know, what's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? And we sometimes come to God that way and we say, what are you going to do for me? And sometimes if we aren't careful, we read the scriptures looking for, hmm, wonder what he can do for me. You know, we read it like an advertisement. And one of the profound ideas, theological ideas that comes through just over and over, you're going to hear this again and again in the scripture, an underlying theme is that God is not willing to be our God on our terms. Second thought, and this one has, again, implications. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? You know, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. And then Cain, he doesn't master it, does he? It's sort of like Adam and Eve. He has that moment. Will I master sin, or will sin master me? And you see him takes Abel out, he kills Abel, and God confronts him. Where's your brother? And then, again, like Adam and Eve, he hides. He says, I don't know. Well, yeah, you do know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He hides. He makes excuses. And that's what we do when we confront God. And the really powerful idea here is we think we can master ourselves. We think we can, quote, fix ourselves. We think that we are perfectible. You remember I told you that the, one of the most fundamental differences that you have with cultural, secular-minded people is that the secular world believes that humanity is perfectible. Every problem I have is something that I can fix or we can fix by getting me better economics, better education. We can stop ISIS. We can stop everything in the world, all the killing, all the economic oppression. If people just sit down and sing kumbaya around the campfire, all hold hands and have a Coke and teach the world to sing, that dates you. If you know that, that's an old commercial. If we'll just do that, that we can have this perfect harmonious society, we can create the Garden of Eden ourselves by perfecting ourselves. That's what the secular world thinks. That is not what the Bible thinks at all. In fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to say, you see this story? It happens over and over and over again. God said, sin wants to consume you. And Abel said, I can handle it. And that's not true, is it? And this is a profound reality. This is something that this story wants to tell us, much more than Cain and Abel and who was older than whom and who went to the better school. The key idea here is this idea that Cain thinks he can master himself, but he cannot. He cannot deal with it. And so sin becomes his master. The Jews have a great way of saying this in one of the extra-biblical writings. It said, uh, talking about this passage, it said that sin is like waiting outside your door, and if you ever open the door and invite it in, sin then becomes the master of your household. Sin won't be a guest in your home. Sin will take over your home. That's what they pull out of this, and that's exactly right, that sin itself is a consuming force. When you look at our world, you can look at sin, like think about uh, Islamic extremism right now is all over our news and some of the horrific things that are being done. You can look at those as bad actions by people who just, mom didn't hug them enough, you know, and if we'll just grab them and give them a big old hug, you know, that they'll be fine, that they're perfectible. That's kind of an underlying idea is that the causes of that are things that can be remedied because we understand sin or bad actions as something that I do but that I can control. I can, it can be overcome. 
Sin does not have to master my household. I can keep sin locked up in a little room. The Bible doesn't look at sin that way at all. Not even slightly. Sin is, with Adam and Eve, is not just that you ate an apple. And with Cain, it's not just that you turned away and you committed an act. What you see sin as being is as a force. He doesn't say, gee, Abel, you need to be careful not to make a mistake and make a bad choice here. He says, no, sin is this force that's crouching at your door. And if you don't master it, it will own you. And the story of the rest of Genesis is sin owns us. In the scripture, sin is seen as a force, especially in the New Testament. And I'd love for us as Christians to look at the New Testament as sin is not just something that you do. And pleasing God isn't just doing good things and avoiding bad things. There's some truth in that. There are actions that are sinful, but that's not how the scripture looks at sin. Sin is a force that wants to consume you, that wants to control us. It is self-centeredness that manifests itself in everything that we do. It is rebellion that manifests itself in everything that we do. Sin cannot be overcome by ourselves. Third thought. So the first thought is, with Cain, God does not accept us on our terms. Second thought is, we think we can perfect ourselves. We think we can master sin. And all of history and all of time tells us we cannot by ourselves do that. So what then happens to, to Cain? The Lord says to him, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You're under a curse now. He says, you are going to go from my presence. You're going to be a wanderer. You're going to go live in the land of wandering. The word nod means wandering. So you're going to live in the land of wandering, and you're not going to be tethered anymore. You're not going to be connected to me. You're just not going to be tethered anymore. I want you to notice something interesting. This is the second expulsion. What happened to Adam and Eve when they rebel against God? They get physically moved outside the Garden of Eden. But what happens spiritually? They broke the harmony with God. And you see that they physically are cast out. Now Cain can't master his sin. He turns away from God. What happens? He gets cast out further east of Eden. And so he too is physically removed and spiritually once again removed. And as you watch Cain's descendants all the way down to Lamech, you get down to the ultimate rejection of God. And the fundamental truth here is that when sin comes in and takes us over, sin continues to take us farther away from God. Sin is powerful not in that, oh, I did too many bad things today, I should quit doing bad things. If you want to do that, go be a Muslim. You can weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. That's not even slightly the way the Bible thinks about sin. Sin is something that will take you and drive you farther and farther away from God. So this idea is that our alienation from God, the things that happen in our world with ISIS and all those things are the result of a powerful force, not just people making bad decisions. Does that make sense? That's a powerful idea that the scripture gives to us. So I want to talk about then a lesson. What does that mean for us? Looking back, if you read this from the point of view of science, you find a lot of things that we'd like to know that we don't know, and we tend to fill that with speculation. Some Christian speculation, some not so Christian. But in any case, speculation. But then you turn to the theology and you realize, oh my goodness, this passage speaks very clearly and very loudly 
because it wants to speak to us in these fundamental principles. What then does that mean for you and me? What difference is knowing that going to make for you and me tomorrow? And here's a powerful, uplifting kind of an idea. And I realize that it looks like we're in a descent of humanity, and we are. You're going to have to go a long way to get from Cain killing Abel to what's going on in our world today, aren't you? And you, you're going to see that descent. And in our next lesson, you're going to see a turning point. You're going to literally see the descent of humanity and the trajectory. You're going to see in our next lesson the seeds of exactly what happens in our world today. But I want to interject a little bit of hope here because that's not what we were created to be. Here's the story. We want God on our terms, and when we can't have it our way, we rebel. We think we can master ourselves. We think we can provide for ourselves. We can handle this on our own, but we can't. And the more we try and the more we sin, the farther away we move from God. That's the story of Cain and Abel, isn't it? That is the story of Cain and Abel. We want God on our terms, and when we can't get it, we're going to rebel. We think we can handle this, we can do it ourselves, and we can't. And the more sin consumes us, the farther away we get from God. But I want you to understand, that's the legacy of Cain, but it is not our destiny. That is not what we were created to be, and it is not what we have to be. Question? I have a couple. Okay. We'll get back to this, but going back to the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. does anybody have any ideas where it was located? Does anyone have any ideas where the Garden of Eden was located? Yes, in modern-day Mesopotamia, pretty much. If we knew exactly where, there'd be a Catholic shrine built on it. Because, I, I mean, and I don't mean that to be facetious, I'm just telling you, they do a great job of this is where this happened. No, no one knows exactly where that is, but generally thought to be in the area of Mesopotamia. In your opinion, if a, if a Buddhist monk lives as sinless a life as he can, will he go to hell when he dies, and does he have a chance for heaven? Does a Buddhist monk have a chance for heaven? <laughs> well, that's an interestingly oblique question, but it's a good question. Let me just answer it partially at this point based on what we know. What this scripture, what the story of human's destiny basically says is this, is that none of us are able to live a life in which we are reconciled with God. Whether you believe that we inherit Adam's sin in some way or another, I would argue you don't have to believe that because you've done it. You and I have rebelled against God. Even the Buddhist monk, even the best acting person that you know, is not adequate to be reconciled to God, to say, I could live in the garden and I could be fine. There's only one person that's ever done that, Jesus the Christ, who did that on our behalf. So, if you could be reconciled to God by acting pretty good, but never to his standard, if you could be reconciled to God that way, then yes, that person would be fine. The scripture teaches us is that no one can. Everyone has sinned, Romans chapter 3, and falls short of the standard of God. So I'm not the judge to say this is where this person's going, that's where that's going, but I'll tell you, this scripture speaks pretty loudly that we cannot do this by ourselves. Was that one of our principles? We think we can master our sin? None of us can. Not that individual or anybody else. But again, let me just turn then to, to something I want to tie together the New Testament a little bit. My point to you is, though, you're sitting here being pretty depressed and saying, so we're, a bunch of, we're just a bunch of sinners, right? 
Yes. Remember that Tim Keller quote I gave you last time? You are worse than you think you are. <laughs> and you are loved more than you ever dared hope. I love that because it captures the human experience. Listen to this, though. Let me tell you what your destiny is here, now, today. Paul in Romans chapter 6 really argues and wrestles this well. He said, you should consider yourselves dead to sin. As long as you're alive, sin owns you. Nothing can get you out of sin taken over your house except dying. He said, so die to sin and then live, be alive to God. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its desires. Don't offer your parts of your body as instruments of sin. In other words, don't go willingly chase sin. He says, you died to that. Rather, offer yourselves to God. Offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Now, here's an interesting thing. Because sin shall not be your master. Why? Because I can deal with it? No, because you are under grace. This is the solution. I can't live a good enough life. I can't master sin, but I can die to sin. Do you understand why the New Testament says what it says? Do you understand why Jesus dies? Why the scripture says your old man is dead? Because you can't fix it. We're going to die. We're going to be created anew. God's going to do a Genesis 1 kind of creation in you and me. So as you go about your business this week, sin is crouching at your door. And if you let it in, it desires to master you, to have you. But also standing at your door, now we're going to fast forward. I'm going to make an early connection here. One of my favorite theologians, young, young and upcoming theologian named Cole Fakes, pointed out this great little connection, and it's beautiful. Sin is crouching at your door and desires to master you. In Revelation, you'll read this. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. You see this? I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door to me, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. Sin wants to own you, and Jesus wants to nourish you. This is your destiny, not the legacy of Cain, the legacy of Christ. And so this week, I want you to stop trying harder. I want you to do that again. I do not want you to say, oh, I've got to tough it out. I've got to be a better person. You cannot master sin on your own. Instead, I want you to cooperate with what God wants to do. How I know that's going to work? Because Jesus Christ did it. Open the door to him. He will come in, and he will make us a new person. You're not going to become a new person. I'm not going to become a new person by trying harder. I'm going to become a new person by letting God do the work he wants to do. You go, now wait a minute, Terry. That sounds way, way too simple. That is the message. That is the good news of the gospel. God wants to transform us. It's not like we fell out of the garden, and now he's like, well, I hope you can find your way back. I hope that you can measure up. That's not the story of the gospel, is it? It said, I came to find you. And I made up the difference. And if you will open up the door and let me in, I will transform you. That is our destiny. That is our hope. So every morning, I'm just going to challenge you to do this. Every morning when you get up, before you grab your smartphone and jump into the world, before you start thinking about everything you did today, somewhere between, between teeth brushing and showering, I want you to think about this. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and God is going to do that little by little every day, beginning this day. And that you don't have to try harder, you just need to cooperate with God, because His Spirit is going to work in you. I want you to rest in that. 
Quit being so stressed and anxious about it and just rest in the fact that your God is able to bring you back to the Garden of Eden. That's your assignment. You better be smiling this week because that's good news. All right? Humanity, Cain, Abel, their descendants, we're going to leave them for a week, and when you come back next week, oh, all hell's going to break loose. I'll see you then.